0: Father God, I pray that you will open our hearts to this text. Thank you for preparing us for worship, Father. Not just worship through singing, but the worship of receiving the word, Father. Right now, we are engaged in worship as we listen to what your word has to say. As we do battle against our sin, against our thoughts, against our feelings even, Father. So Lord, I pray that you will be honored by this worship that we are about to do. I pray that you'll be honored by my poor, but sincere words for you, Father. And I pray that you'll be honored by poor hearing, but hearing that will be effective in living and doing. Father God, we submit ourselves to you, and we give you all that we have. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's difficult for modern Christians to appreciate just how unique and radical the work of Jesus of Nazareth actually was back in Second Temple Israel. For generations, the people had waited for God's deliverance from their enemies. They had been conquered and devastated by the, by the Babylonians. They had been tolerated by the Persians, massacred by the Greeks, and duped into submission by the Romans. They were looking for a strong man, a warrior, a politically savvy leader, a zealous and holy restorer of the kingdom. One example of this, you can just look to the inhabitants of Qumran. Qumran was just a little village of sectarian Jews just west of the Dead Sea. Well, they expected that the Davidic Messiah would come to openly wage war on the enemies of the kingdom, that he would defeat and humiliate the Romans. The result would be when he defeats these Romans that all the nations of the earth, earth all the kings of the earth would come and bow to the king of Judah, and that the kingdom of Judah would be preeminent above all. They would be the politically strongest kingdom on earth. They'd be economically strongest, and the Gentiles would lick the dust off their feet and serve them. So they were looking for that kind of Messiah, someone who would come ready to lop off heads, someone who would come ready to embarrass Romans. But instead of coming as a mighty warrior... Jesus came as a humble carpenter's son. Instead of leading armies, he led fishermen. Instead of demolishing the wicked, he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Instead of coming from some important place like Jerusalem or Rome, he came from Nazareth. Jesus was simply not the Messiah the people expected or even wanted. Their hometown view of Jesus, as a result led them to reject Jesus for who he really was. So I think if we look at Matthew 13, verses 53 through 58, we're going to see what happens when people domesticate their king. When people try to wrap their king around their own expectations, and as a result, become offended when he doesn't meet their expectations. The people of Nazareth heard Jesus' wisdom, they saw his mighty works, but they knew nothing of his salvation and missed out completely on the glory of God's kingdom. They simply could not get over the fact that Jesus did not look like the Messiah from God. Sounded like it, did things that reminded them of the Messiah from God, but he did not look like the Son of God. My friends, the warning is simple today do not domesticate jesus do not have a tamed expectations for a messiah that don't have a in other words don't have a messiah who is to be boxed in tamed by your expectations of what a king should do or what a king should look like jesus is the authoritative son of man Not just some other hometown figure who intends to meet your expectations. As if he was some popular high school football star who returns back to his hometown and runs for mayor. That's not Jesus. Jesus is king over all. And when he does not meet our expectations, guess what? He is still king. Even more, when he is rejected as king, he is still king king so we have the choice today between a likable but ordinary hometown jesus of whom we know nothing of his saving power or the real saving sovereign untamed davidic lord as he is a jesus of our own making the jesus who really is i just want to invite you to the question which jesus do you follow A Jesus who meets all your expectations, conforms to your will and desires and what you think his kingdom should look like, or a Jesus who consistently breaks the mold of your expectations. So instead of trying to fit Jesus in, we must allow our faith to supplant our expectations. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. Matthew doesn't tell us where his hometown was, but we know from Luke 4 that it was Nazareth. Nazareth was not some spectacular city. In fact, when Nathaniel heard that the disciples had found the Messiah, the one who was to come, and they said, we found him in Nazareth, Nathaniel's reaction was, does anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, that was the reputation that Nazareth had. It's like asking, does anything good come from Ennis, <laughs> right? Just by way of analogy, if you're from Ennis, there's no offense here. <laughs> I'm from Oklahoma, so I don't know. You know I've just, this is just what I've heard, okay? And so for people to think that something profound, something amazing, something kingly, something royal, something earth-shaking, something cosmically redemptive would come from Nazareth was laughable, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ in
1: Nazareth, you must be telling a joke.
0: They were rightly astonished. It was remarkable to see this man teach and move and work to heal the sick. They had heard of this man touching lepers and stealing the storms and casting out demons and his wisdom and teaching. He doesn't teach like the scribes, but with his own authority. And they heard and they saw and he's in Nazareth. Their astonishment leads to a line of questions. So you can see in their, in their trying to figure out Jesus, they, they hear, like close their eyes, they hear the words of a king, they see the fruit, they see lame men walking, lepers clean, they see evidence that the king has been there, but then they open their eyes and they see Jesus and they say, huh? Here's their line of question, where did this man, you can kind of hear their doubt in that question, can't you? Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this not, is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? As amazing as Jesus was, That people could not rationalize how this man, this dirty, homeless carpenter's son, could be so wise and so mighty. This doesn't look like the king that we wanted. This doesn't look like the king we expected. He's just another hometown boy. We knew his father. Joseph made my dining room table. We know his mother. She goes shopping at the Aldi in Nazareth. We know his brothers. You know, old Joseph, the, the brother, just got bailed out from DUI earlier. All of his sisters, yeah, they're kind of cool. My cousin's married to one of them. Just another hometown Jesus.
1: There are statements about their,
0: his family imply that they don't see Jesus as anything particularly special. You've heard the phrase familiarity breeds contempt. That's what's happening here. They're very familiar with Jesus. They simply cannot reconcile with what their ears hear, their eyes see, and the man that stands before them. And the irony of it all is that before them stood a sage, wiser than Solomon, a prophet who saw God's face more than Moses, a priest holier than Mechizedek, a king greater than David, and yet they see him as nothing more than the carpenter's son. The question betrays their confusion. Where did this man get this wisdom and mighty works? Now, I think Jesus' wisdom and his works spoke for themselves. Even Nicodemus in John chapter 3 acknowledged Jesus, we, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Even Nicodemus, a, a Pharisee, is acknowledging what the Pharisees know, that Jesus could not have this kind of wisdom except from God. So he must be from God. But yet, even when they know that he must be from God, they are completely suspicious that he's not. They're hesitant to acknowledge that Jesus is the authoritative king, come from God, that they are to submit their lives to his reign, that they are to leave all and to follow him, to trust in him and in nothing else. Where did this man get his power? The answer is clearly from God. And yet their question shows
1: that they're not ready to accept that.
0: The king is working. The king is speaking. But he hung out with the wrong people. He's from the wrong town. He's not inciting revolts against Rome. He's telling his people to love those who hate them. This is the wrong kinds of things we're looking for in a king. We want a king to level the hostility. We want a king to pummel the enemies, right? We want a sword-slashing warrior. And that's not Jesus. He's gentle. He's lowly. He's the kind of Jesus that laughs and reclines at the table with adulterous people. Who has every right to pick up a stone and stone the adulterous woman caught in the act and puts his stone down. He's the kind of man who should be trying to knife Matthew in the back. In some dark alleyway. And yet he's the one that calls Matthew to follow him in joy. Little did they know though that in all this rejection they were actually fulfilling scripture. Isaiah 53 verses 2-3 through 3, prophesied about the coming savior. It says "As He had no former majesty that we should look at him. Let me just put that plainly. He doesn't look like a king. This isn't the guy that you would point to and say, Yep, there's the king. We see him, we know him, there he is. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Put simply, other than Jesus' teaching and work, there was no external indicators showing that people should follow him. Now, we act like following Jesus is just common sense. Yeah, absolutely, follow Jesus. But according to Isaiah 53, that's not the case. You don't just look at this carpenter's son and say, yep, that's the king. You have to look deeper. You have to look beyond those things. He carries no form of majesty. He has no princely proof. Nazarene carpenters simply do not look like kings. They're definitely not from the pool of people you would choose your highest political leaders from. I mean, just think about what we look for in presidents. We want someone who went to Yale or Harvard or has a big business degree or some kind of princely proof that they should be sitting in the presidency. Jesus had none of that.
1: I, I hesitate to say but it's absolutely true if Jesus were running for president you probably wouldn't vote for him. Because that's how he came. They were looking at Jesus the same way
0: people looked at kings in 1st Samuel. Take, for example, Saul. Saul was a tall guy. They say that he was a full head and shoulders taller than any man in Israel. He came from a prestigious family. He's a son of Kish. We don't know what it means that Kish was a a mighty man. It could mean that he was an awesome warrior. Maybe this is a guy, maybe this is a military hero in Israel. We don't know what that means, mighty hero. It could also mean wealthy man. He might have been the wealthiest man in Israel for all we know. All we know is that Saul is a son of Kish, and that means something. He's got a pedigree of power. And then 1 Samuel chapter 13 tells us that Saul is the only one in all of Israel who has a sword. He's the only one in all of Israel that can fight the enemy, who has a weapon, So he fits the the part. He looked the part. And yet, as history showed, he lacked the heart. This was not God's anointed king because God doesn't save by sword or spear. God doesn't save by height and brawn. God saves in the weakness of his anointed one. Saul was rejected and Samuel was commanded to go. And to anoint the new king of all people, Samuel should have known, we're not looking for another Saul. Don't look just for someone who's tall. And yet even he falls into the mindset that God picks his kings based on what they look like. He sees Eliab. Eliab is probably tall and big. He's the oldest son. And and he probably has a chest to make all of us weep. He's just brawny and big and muscular. And that's who we want to be king. And this is what Samuel says, surely, The Lord's anointed is before him. Very simply, surely that's the king. Surely that's the one that God has in mind to lead us. And then comes God's warning. Do not look on his outward appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And one by one, the sons of Jesse were rejected. One by one, the strongest, the smartest, the wisest, the tallest, the oldest, all of them. One by one passed over until we get to the smallest, the shepherd boy,
1: the smelly one, the one who pulls out
0: the ewe lambs as they're being born which is gross. The one who has no resume to show us that he should be
1: king. And yet he is the anointed one.
0: Because in the weakness of David that God would display his power before Goliath. It's in the weakness of David that God would set us on a trajectory to stop looking for the tallest, for the biggest, for the strongest, for the smartest and to begin looking for God's work in the foolish things of the world. So people saw David, and all they saw was a shepherd boy. People see Jesus, and all they see is a carpenter's son. Jesus' lackluster, his unexceptional appearance, kept them looking for another king. And therefore, in the words of John 1 through 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The people of Nazareth's domesticated view of Jesus led them to reject him. Verse 57 is telling, just let this sink in. They see this king, they hear him, they hear his words, they get to hear the words of Jesus himself. And they took offense at him. The word offense comes from the same word that means to stumble. They just can't wrap their minds around it. This is, this is hard for us to believe. Hard for us to understand. The word implies that at best they were skeptical of him. Mm, I don't know. He's got a little bit more to prove before I'm ready to call him king. At worst, it could mean that they were repulsed by him. You're saying that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised king? Really? Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Abraham. Ha! That's the kind of word that scandalizo carries, that they stumbled at him. Stumbled because of him. How should they characterize Jesus? If he's from God, then the appropriate response is to repent and trust. However, surely a Nazarene's not from God. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Look it up, the the Pharisees say. They say outright, look it up. No prophet arises from Galilee. That's where Nazareth is. They outright ask, When people say, This is the Christ, the Pharisees respond, Is Christ to come from Galilee? He just simply doesn't fit, and they stumble. Their eyes saw and their ears heard, but their hearts remained blind and deaf. Jesus answered their offense, saying, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Now, up to this point, we should be seeing the sinners tax collectors, lepers, and yes, even Roman centurion, Roman scum, respond positively to Jesus. While the religious community, society's elite, the right-wing conservative Jewish branch, his hometown, in his own hometown, the liberal Sadducees, all of them, all these people that you would expect to receive him, none of them do. All of them laugh at him. All of them turn away from him. They have all turned away like sheep. All of them. So Jesus' proverb is showing how in line they are with the rest of redemptive history. He, he, it, it does apply to him. they have rejected him as not just the Son of God, but as a prophet. He is speaking the words of Christ, the, the words of God. He is speaking the truth, He is revealing the hidden mysteries of the kingdom, and yet they are too deaf to hear it. Their offense falls in line with what has been happening for all time. Now if we're listening to this offense correctly, we're going to see how it's going to ramp up. The the people of Nazareth were offended. That's going to lead an inch closer to Jerusalem and Golgotha. It's this kind of offense that leads Jesus to the cross. They're repulsed by him, and then he repulses the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then the people of Jerusalem are looking for him to be the kind of king they're looking for, and they're repulsed by him, and that leads eventually to crucifixion, to be nailed on the cross. When uh, Stephen's talking about uh, the people of God in Acts, for example, he lays out the historical resume of their hostility towards God's messengers. He says, you rejected Joseph. Joseph was a prophet. You rejected Moses. Moses was a prophet. Now climaxing their rebellion, they rejected and crucified the son of God. Stephen concludes saying, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the righteous one whom you now have betrayed and murdered. It's all fallen in line with what the people of God had always done, what Israel had always done. I I, I just want to point to this. If you believe and accept that Jesus is the king, that doesn't come from yourself.
1: Who is to say that we are the
0: first ones in all of history to naturally be drawn to the Savior by our own volition? No one seeks after God. No, not one. That's scripture, isn't it? All have turned aside, and they even say that we are dead. So my friends, if you see Jesus as king, if you know that Jesus is the one who speaks the word of God, does the the work of God, my friends, bask in the grace of God. Do not sit there and boast in your own ability to come to that knowledge. Nazareth, Jesus' own hometown, could not see it. Israel, the people of God, saw Jesus. They had the Hebrew scriptures. They could read them. They knew them better than any of us, and yet they were still blind and did not recognize him. So if you recognize him for who he is, my friend, drink deeply of the grace that has been given and stop boasting. I will boast in nothing but Christ nothing but Christ, not my morality, not my intellect, not my ability to see things, not my ability to see behind the curtains. My friends, I was blind, but now I see deaf, but now I hear dead, but now alive. And only because Jesus is the King who came from heaven to seek me. All of this is working together to show that Jesus is consistent with God's plan. Isaiah 53 clearly shows him to be the man of sorrows, the suffering servant. And in his crucifixion, his rejection, his hatred among the the people of God is going to prove him to be that son of of sorrow, that one who is rejected, who is acquainted with grief. Now, the people's rejection was sourced in their inherent unbelief, and, that they, and in that unbelief they would stay. According to Matthew 13, 58, Nazareth's unbelief led to Jesus not doing many works in the village. Why wouldn't he? My friends, I'm very easy to be brought into a competition, okay? You, if you, if you want to make game night interesting, just tell me how much you're going to win, Okay? If you question my intellect, just openly say that, and that will invite me into proving my intellect. You doubt my strength, and you want a some kind of physical, uh, some kind of physical competition. I don't care if you're um, the gold medal winner of the Olympics. I'll still run, and I'll run behind you, but I will try to beat you. <laughs> That's just the na- nature of a competitive spirit. So if I'm Jesus. And they're saying, I just don't see it. Man, I'm going to perform more tricks. (laughs) Y'all are right by the Sea of Galilee. You heard about the water and the wine thing? Y'all want to go swimming in a Merlot? (laughs) Y'all heard about me walking on the the sea? Now, you want to see me walk on your head? Like, there's some kind of, I mean, this to me would incite something in me that would want to break out and be like, you you want proof? Okay, here it is. But Jesus doesn't do that. I can't help but scratch my head and say, why? I mean, everything's on the line here, Jesus. Your identity as the Son of God is on the line here. Your identity is on the Christ. These people are struggling with whether or not you're them, and you do nothing to try to prove that you're him. You don't do any additional Things to you don't you don't move and placate to their desire to see more. Give us more signs, Jesus. My friends, we're in the middle of a political season, and we see a lot of campaigning going on. Let me just speak a truth that I think is refreshing to me: the Davidic king has no need to campaign for people's acceptance.
1: He doesn't need to go on road shows. He doesn't need to call town hall meetings. He doesn't need to debate with the Pharisees because you know what? There's the simple reality that he's
0: King, not a politician. He's King, not a government official. He's King and not just King of Israel, but King of all by fact. He has no need to turn his messianic mission into a sideshow magician. Trick to where he's trying to entertain people into believing in him. I mean, later he stands before King Herod, and King Herod says, Show me a sign. I've I've wanted to meet you forever. Jesus could have saved his life. Do you realize that? Jesus could have gotten out of the cross if he would have just wowed Herod by a card trick. Herod was that kind of superficial guy. He hears that Jesus has been arrested, they're contemplating killing Jesus. They bring him to Herod, and Herod goes, I've wanted to meet you. For a long time. Can you show me a miracle?
1: But Jesus isn't a magician. He's not an entertainer. He doesn't need Herod to be convinced that he is king. He's the one who sovereignly ordained Herod to have a crown temporarily. My friends... Our
0: experience of a lion typically goes back to the Ridley Circus where we see some little man with a hat, top hat, and a stick telling a lion to jump through certain hoops. But when you stand before this lion,
1: he jumps through no hoops. He's not impressed
0: by top hats. This isn't a three-ring circus that Jesus has to do tricks to convince people that he is the Messiah. He has shown them all they needed to see. And here's the most important reality. Jesus knows that even if he turned the entire sea of Galilee into a gigantic Merlot, okay, that people would still reject him. That's not his vindication. That's not how God has planned to vindicate him. The reality is that vindication would come And the whole world would be given the ultimate sign, the ultimate sign in which there would never ever need to be another sign that he is indeed the promised son. God's plan leads him into Nazareth. And through Nazareth's rejection and the Pharisees plotting, it leads down to the pit of Caiaphas' house, up the stairs of Pilate's court, down the streets of Jerusalem, through the mocking crowds, up Golgotha and onto the cross where he died in absolute shame. He was buried. So much for the so-called prophet from Nazareth. So much for the one blind man said was the son of David. Those who loved him mourned the lost hope of the one who was supposed to restore the kingdom. The ones who hated him rejoiced that that troublemaker, that carpenter's son is dead. And for three days, people whispered.
1: And on the third day, God broke
0: stone. The Son of Man rose again. Jesus lives. And forever is to be declared as the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Why didn't Jesus prove himself? Because proof was coming. On the cross and in the tomb. My friends, how do you know Jesus is king? The tomb's still empty. They've not found Jesus' body. So as long as the tomb's still empty, Jesus is king. That's the ultimate proof that you need. That's his vindication that he has it all in his hands, that he needs none of our help in controlling it. He's the sovereign king, the sovereign God. He is the one who has won the authority and the sovereignty over all things. Now, the tragedy of this account is that Nazareth was short-sighted. They had proximity to Jesus. They had access to Jesus. They heard his teaching. They saw his work. The Savior of the world stood in their midst, and yet they experienced nothing of his salvation. My friends, the new wine of the kingdom was laid before them, and they failed to taste of its sweetness. The feast of grace was tabled, warm, and ready for them to partake. And they remained empty and starving by their own volition. I think this should serve as a warning for all. You're here at church. That's a big win. And I praise God that you're here at church. Many of you have a Bible. That's a win. Praise God. I'm glad you have a Bible. Many of you know very, uh, lots of important memory verses like Jesus wept. And praise God, that's great. Let me just say something that you need to hear, though. Looking at the wine is not drinking. Standing by the table is not eating. And salvation is not given to those who are near Jesus.
1: It's given to those who are in Jesus.
0: Salvation is not given to those who are near Jesus, it is only given to those who are in Jesus, to those who abandon all reservations, all other hopes to trust only in him. Many people in our day, and this is my greatest fear as a shepherd, as a pastor, for myself and for you, that we would become settled in our proximity to Jesus and think that's it. Many of us, we, we've been in churches our whole lives. We speak the religious jargon. We quote scripture. We know a lot about Jesus, just like the people of Nazareth did. We're very familiar with him. And yet we know nothing about the joy, the peace, and the rest that comes from truly having Jesus. For years, a person can hear the word of God and even see his work, just like the people of Nazareth did we can observe his work in the lives of those around us and yet never experience for ourselves the fruit of the kingdom. My friends, it's not just lost people that do this, it's saved people who kind of get into this rut. How do you know if you are someone who has duped yourself that proximity is enough? How do you know if you're someone who is currently living in proximity to Jesus, but who has no real experience of him? Well, Those who are in proximity of Jesus can see his work and hear his words, but when they leave, they remain completely unchanged. Not unlike the rich young ruler who heard about teacher. Teacher is good. Teacher is great. Let's go to the teacher and find out what I must do to have eternal life. Hears that he must give up all and follow Jesus and walks away unchanged and sad. That's proximity to Jesus versus having the true, real presence of Jesus. Truly experiencing Jesus inevitably leads to transformation every single time. How do you know you've had a successful devotion time in the morning? You walk away changed in some way. Thoughts, mindset, actions is, is simple. By beholding him, you are transformed into his image. By being rooted in him, we bear fruit. So ask yourself this. As you meet Jesus in the quiet places of your life, do you gradually grow in joy, peace, mercy, faith, love, or do you see yourself plummeting into despair, anxiety, anger, hatred, frustration? What is your experience? I'm not saying you're a lost person if that's your reality. No. Saved people do the very same thing. We dip into times when
1: proximity is enough.
0: It's not, of course, to say that you have to be perfect. But it does mean that if you are engaged with Jesus, if you are in Jesus, you are engaged in the process of being perfected. Gold cannot sit in a white hot fire and remain unrefined. I'm in charge of the dishes at our house, so there's a lot of dish soaking. Here's one thing I've learned about dish soaking. A dirty dish cannot sit in hot soapy water for long and remain filthy. It really does work. When your husband tells you that he's soaking the dishes, it's working. Marble can't withstand the sculptor's chisel for long without being chipped in some way. Similarly, a person who's in Jesus cannot help but to become more saturated in the joy of knowing him, regardless of what's going on on the outside. What's happening outside is important. It's big. It's dangerous. It's scary. It's sad. It's unfortunate. But we have a joy that is beyond explanation and that continues to grow despite what happens outside. If we are not transformed, if we do not see our attachments to the world slowly burning away, if we do not sense the dirt of idolatry being washed off, or feel the painful chipping of our sinful affections, then what confidence do we have that we are truly experiencing the redemptive work of Christ? An untouched marble slab that has no signs of chipping, cannot claim that a sculptor's been at work. A dish that has dry, dirty food on it and has not been soaking in the gospel water cannot claim that it's being washed by a washer. My friends, a lump of dirt that claims it's gold on the inside but just looks like a lump of dirt without any kind of refinement cannot claim to be refined by a refiner. My friends, do not settle for standing near the feast, but sit down and eat. Don't just hold the wine cup. Yes, we've got the kingdom. We've got it. We've got it. We've got it. Great. Now shut up and drink it. It's sweet, it's intoxicating. Drink the dregs, drink it every day, come back to it. It's, it's a cup that never empties out, it's bottomless. Drink from the cup, don't just talk about it. Drink. Don't just look behold. Don't just stand on the beach, swim in the ocean and do so with confidence, knowing that your great God and King has redeemed you, not just so that you can hear and so you can see, but so that you can have. Man, I got to live this out recently. I took my wife on our 10th anniversary last weekend. And someone uh, gave us, and I'm very grateful for pastor's appreciation, someone gave us a saltgrass gift card. And you know, we're, we're very modest people, so saltgrass is like, <laughs> that's a big deal. And so we're sitting there, and, and, and um, we order our steaks, and Jonathan's asleep, and we're thinking, yes, buddy. Have, I'm, I, I, got the, I, I went all out. This was a gift card that could cover it all, so we covered it all. Um, it was a a 10 ounce steak, unashamed to tell you that I broke keto that night. Um, and I had shrimp with it. Okay. And so I'm sitting there and they had just brought out the plate and Jonathan wakes up and start crying. And so I'm like, okay, well, he's probably got to eat. And Rachel's looking at me apologetically and she's trying to maneuver in the table where she can, you know, feed him. And those tables are kind of, close together so she can't. She goes, oh, I'm going to have to go to the bathroom. I'm having my steak knife in my farm. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but she goes, honey, you're not going to wait for me? <laughs> I mean, you can eat if you want to. <laughs> so I'm sitting here looking at this 10-ounce steak and shrimp. Five minutes go by. Ten minutes go by. And I just, it just dawned on me, that's, that everything about that was wrong. Steaks weren't meant to look at. <laughs> and eventually, I found myself kind of carving off the edges just a little bit, and then carving off the edge of hers just a little bit. <laughs> and that 10-ounce steak pretty soon became an 8-ounce steak. But still, my friends, how often do we sit there at the table and stare at the steak? The knife is right there. The fork is there dig in we're acting as if the feast is to come someday and it is there's a now and not yet aspect of the kingdom but my friends joy has been made ready now for you the wine of the kingdom still to come but jesus is the sweet wine of the kingdom and you already have him so drink eat
1: flourish
0: I think that's my simple invitation to you. I have lots of other applications, but I'm not going to go into it right now. I think the one thing that I think we need to to understand and that we need to bask in is that sometimes we put too much weight on what our eyes see. We look at the carpenter's son and we keep him a carpenter's son. We look at the man of Nazareth and he's just a man of Nazareth. We look at the crucified carpenter's son, and he's just the crucified carpenter's son. But it takes faith to bring you into seeing that he is the risen son of David who reigns forevermore. My friends, we look way too much at the things around us. We listen way too much to the things around us. And we assume that because we see and we hear and that what we see and hear is absolutely true and right, and we know what's going to happen. How many times has God shown us that's not the case? The man of Nazareth is not just the man of Nazareth. He's the Lion of Judah. The cross was not a defeat. It was victory through defeat. My friends, bask in that. Your eyes are not trustworthy to see. Sure, you can make some good conclusions about what's going on, and you may be right. But unless your conclusion ends that God is keeping his promise, you're not seeing fully. Let me tell you a little bit about the hidden work of God right now. Nations are raging. People are plotting in vain. People are whispering. People are questioning. People are hating. People are murdering. People are legalizing sin.
1: People are running from God. It looks bad. But our ears are too finite to hear the laughter
0: of God. I mean, that's the rest of Psalm 2, right? It does say the nation's rage, the people plot in vain. But then it says, the Lord in heaven laughs and holds them in derision. And he says, I have enthroned my king. On Zion. My friends. God's not fearful. God's not worried. God knows that what your eyes see. Are only a part of the picture. And there's much more behind the curtains. That he's doing. We believe not just in a son of Nazareth. Not just in a man who carried a cross. We believe in a God man who reigns right now. He's not just good for Sundays. He's not just good for Christmas. Not just good for Easter. Not just good for us to put a little white cross out in our front yard once a year. He's not just good for all of that. He is good for now because he's my king now. It may not seem like it, but you better believe it. One day my knee will bow and my tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. And so will everyone else's. Do not put too much stock in what your eyes see. It was that mistake that led Nazareth to reject Jesus and miss out on his salvation. And it's that same mistake that's causing you daily to turn from Jesus and not enjoy the wine of the kingdom. See Jesus for who he is. Don't see him through what you see out in the world. See Jesus for who he is. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that our hometown knowledge of Jesus will not keep us from truly enjoying Him. Lord, let us bask in the glory and in the knowledge that You have made a foolish, weak man from Nazareth, a
1: carpenter's son, and to the King of all.
0: You work through the foolishness of the cross. God, those three days that Jesus laid in the tomb, you were not wondering what you would do next. You raised them from the dead. And your plan marches on, just as you have made it to do so. So God, right now, with all the fears and all the worries, all the planning, all the strategy, all the discussions that we're having, I pray, Lord, just for a moment that we would be silent and live in the real fact that we have a king. Yes, What's happening is important. Yes, all the things around us are are significant. But they're still under your throne and under your sovereignty, and you're still king. Help us, Father, to not just stand by the table, but to sit and eat and enjoy. We pray this in your Son's name.